Okay, Boker Tov. Today's staff is Baba Kama Peichet, Baba Kama 88. We pick up on um, the uh, last two lines of Pezayin Amut Bet, last word on the line of the third line from the bottom. And we're in the middle of a issue here, a question about when a man's daughter is injured, um, whether he collects the money for the injury or not. And in the Gemara, in the end, the Gemara sort of uh, came to the position that basically he would only collect the shevet, the loss of her labor for the time that she was, uh, uh, the payment for the loss of the labor for the time that she was still uh, under age because he could sell her as a slave for that time. All right, and then the Gemara says like this, and we really should have read these last few lines yesterday because just a few lines to finish up the sugya. V'chein amareish lakish, and reish lakish similarly said, lo zachsa Torah la'av el shvach ne'urim bavad. The Torah only gave the father the normal shvach ne'urim, which is the right to marry her, to sell her as a slave if she's underage, rabbinically if she finds a metzia, but not payments for the injury, again, with the possible exception of the shevet, but basically not payments for the injury. Rabbi Yochanan says, even a wound, even if he didn't do any type of serious injury, uh, just, you know, uh, make, if, if, not he, excuse me, even if somebody else didn't do any type of serious injury, you know, gave her a hit, made her black and blue, the father would still collect. So the Gemara says, Do you think for a psia, like how did that actually, you know, like what payment is there for that? I mean, I guess there could be boshet or whatever, but why would the father, you know, be entitled to that? Even Rebbe Lezer's question, which started this whole sugya, was a real type of a, you know, injury that now she's worth less. Like if you were to try to sell her as a slave or if you were to try to marry her off, you know, and there we could have that whole discussion about, about does he actually collect or not? But why should he stom collect for some type of a, of a wound that's not going to impact his ability to make money for her when he marries her off or when he, uh, you know, when, 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 when he sells her? Um, so the Gemara says, but a simple wound that's not making her worth less, her, her money, her value is not worth less. That wasn't his question. But no, somebody hit her in the face and, uh, you know, and now, even though it's not a permanent injury, now affected his, his ability to marry her off, you know, and uh, maybe marry her off at this time. Maybe it's going to be, take a long time to heal. Maybe it's a scar and, you know, and therefore she won't be as attractive. So that's going to affect his ability to collect her. So all of this is, of course, very disturbing in terms of the whole reality of the father treating his daughter like goods and marrying her off and getting money for marrying her off or selling her and so on. But what it also, um, so, uh, you know, there's just, uh, whatever, that's obviously no, nothing to say about that, about that very deeply, deeply disturbing social reality. Um, but what it also shows is that the idea that the father would collect seems to be from this Gemara, not, uh, sta- you know, we basically rejected it, that the father wouldn't collect it, maybe some of the issue for her labor. But here, but when the Gemara asked he would collect, you know, the thinking was, oh, so what, even if for her tsar, even for her suffering, even for her embarrassment, like, should we just assume that any money that comes through the girl, the father pockets? And it sounded like that a little bit, that on the side that the father would collect, it would be for any payments that would be going to her. Here, the Gemara makes it sound that, no, our whole question was about something that actually impacted the father's pocketbook. That now, because of her injury, you know, he's not going to be able to sell her as, a, you know, to, if the, his ability to sell her and get money for kiddushin or sell her for a slave, that will be less money. And therefore, because he's going to lose that, maybe he should actually 
the money for that should go to him. So now, the, 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 at least the scope of the question makes a lot more sense. That the general assumption is pain, suffering, embarrassment, you know, all of that the girl gets. The slight loss of wages, you know, in terms of actually being laid up in the hospital, you, that you actually can't work, you know, that would go to the father because that actually is like something that he could sell. And the question is the fact that he could, uh, you know, uh, sell her for less as uh, because of the injury, not the actual direct payment for the loss of wages, but the injury, which also impacts the fact that he could sell her for less as a slave or as a bride, you know, should he get that because that affects ultimately, you know, what he could sell her for? Or do we say, since he doesn't have the right to do the injury, he also doesn't collect for the injury? So the scope of the question of the Gemara man makes more sense. Okay, we are done with that sugya, and now we continue with the next. So this is the Mishnah. If somebody damages another person's uh, Canaanite slave that's considered their property, then you, you pay and you pay the full amount to the master. Um, but uh, Rabbi Yehuda says you do not pay for boshes because there's no boshet for slaves. And the, if you remember, Rabbi Yehuda also sort of categorically excluded a blind person from liability for boshet, the way the Gemara understood it. And here, Rabbi Yehuda is going to categorically exclude a slave, and, and that led to all these discussions of other ways for Rabbi Yehuda, a blind person was categorically excluded from a range of mitzvot. Here we're going to have something very similar. Rabbi Yehuda categorically excludes a slave from collecting boshet, or boshet being paid on account of a slave, paid to the master. And then the question is going to be, what is the scope uh, that does, does he, a, a similar range of areas that Rabbi Yehuda also um, categorically excludes a slave from uh, different uh, sort of mitzvot and liabilities or so on. Let's take a look. Okay, what's the reason of Rebbe Yehuda that you do not pay boshet for injuring a slave to the master? The Pesach says, Okay, if people fight, and then, you know, the end of the Pesach is that, um, that a woman uh, to defend her husband sticks out her hand and grabs another person by his genitals, and it says, cut off her hand, and anyway, from there, somehow, Chazal understand that there's an obligation of boshet. So the chiv of boshet starts by two people, each v'achiv, fighting with one another. Okay, um, a man and his brother. Um, somebody who has a brotherhood. To exclude a slave that does not have brotherhood. So what does that mean that a slave doesn't have brotherhood? So it can mean a couple of things. If you look at Rashi, Rashi says, He can't marry a Jew, so he's not considered to be part of that sort of community. You know, if that were true, you could ask, how about a mamzer? Should a mamzer not also not have boshet because, you know, can't marry bekahal? So in the slide, slide it gives another answer. There's not considered to be any family relationships with a slave. A slave can actually marry his sister, okay? Slave is not considered to be because Chazal understood, I mean, different than non-Jews. Non-Jews, as Sheva Mrs. B'nai Noach, can't marry their sister. But the slaves, fundamentally, Chazal understood that the whole family structure speaks to the reality, you know, whatever, even though the Torah recognizes that when a person is a Hebrew slave, you know, he, he has a wife and kids at the time and so on, but for a non-Jewish slave, does not sort of see a family structure at all. And therefore, um, there's no sense of uh, family relations. There's no achva. If you look at Tosos, Tosos says, uh, Perish ein yotze of kruyim achim. 
a similar point except going laterally rather than horizontally, that his children are not considered brothers to one another. He's not, his children aren't related to him and not related to one another. So a slave that is not in this category of family is not in boshet. Um, exactly what that means. Is that like a xeris hakosov? Does that somehow mean that boshet only can occur amongst people seen of sort of, of a similar type of a status? But it's not saying he's not equal status to Yisrael. It's saying he doesn't have you know, families. Or does that mean if you don't have family, you don't have any sense of community? And if you don't have any community, therefore boshet is something that has to do with sort of public embarrassment? Not exactly clear. But anyway, Rebuta excludes a slave. Vrabanan, what would the rabbi say back? No, he still is your brother in mitzvot. It might be that there's not any sort of sort of family structure recognized, but nevertheless, you know, a slave is obligated. A slave, you take a slave, you dunk him in the mikvah, and he's obligated in mitzvot even as a man, he, even even as a man equal to a woman. And then if he gets freed, he becomes fully obligated as a man. If we're talking about a male slave, so he has a chiyuv mitzvot like other Jews, and therefore he's considered to be part of your religious community. Maybe not part of a biological family he's not recognized, but he is recognized as part of your religious community. Very fascinating Mi'iri, very sort of radical Mi'iri in a number of places that spoke about how if non-Jews keep the uh, you know, uh, um, practices of their religion and abide by sort of the moral tenets of their religion, they might be considered achiv b'mitzvost Jews in search for certain areas of halacha. Quite, quite fascinating. But here, anyway, within the normal realm of Jewish mitzvot and of Jewish observance, he is part of our Jewish religious family. Achiv b'mitzvot. Elamiata says the Gemara for Rabbi Yehuda is going to say a slave isn't in the frame of word of achiv. Rabbi Yehuda, eved lo yehargu. If people are, you know, aiding Zomamim and trying to, they came to make, say, a slave committed murder and they're found to be guilty, then they shouldn't have to pay. Or they shouldn't have to be, uh, be put to death. Why not? You should do to them like they tried to do to their brother. And this slave isn't their brother. For Rabbi Yehuda, again, the rabbis say he's part of our, our mitzvah community, our religious community. But for Rabbi Yehuda, Zomamim for a slave should not be put to death. And Digmar thinks that that's absurd. And as Tosa says, if that were true, then you could never obligate a slave because then it would be to Yachol Hazima. You could never bring a slave to Din through Edus because the Edus could never get, because if it's not in the category of Edim Zomamim, then also it can never be, they can, the Edus could never be accepted. And we know you accept Edus against slaves. So how does this work? So Amar Rav, Amar Rav Amar Krav, the verse says, Kirbacha. You should, you should destroy the evil from your midst. Mikol Makom. That's a broader sense of the punishment of aid of Edim Zomimim. You should read that category of who gets punished for Edim Zomimim in a broader way, not in a narrower way. So yes, Edim Zomimim do apply even when they're testifying against a slave. Elamiata says, if that's true, for the rabbis that think a slave is considered amongst your, you know, um, uh, our brother in mitzvot, in our religious community. So the Pesach says, from amongst your brethren you shall make a king from which the Gemara understands that a slave or even a gare also cannot be a um, cannot be a, a, a king because it's not, you know, our natural, naturally born sort of brother, biologically part of our um, community. But according to um, to the to the Rabbana, why don't we just say they're part of our mitzvahs community, our religious community? 
Amri, so the Gemara says back, according to you, why don't you ask about the idea of a ger? Right? Whether you say the uh, Rebbe Yehuda's reason um, or the Rabbanan's reason, a ger, you know, even for Rebbe Yehuda, who has a, um, you know, a narrower definition of achiv, um, you know, who has a narrower definition of achiv, um, so um, ger should be achiv even for Rebbe Yehuda. Why? Well, first of all, he can marry into Jews, according to that explanation of Rashi, or his children are related to him once he converts, even though after he converts, his parents are not related to him, but at least his children are related to him. So a ger should be considered to be achiv for everybody. He's in our mitzvah community, our religious community. He has relatives, um, you know, after he converts, so his children will be relatives. So why, so why not? So obviously, so, so yeah, you've got a question. Why are we so exclusionary by Malchus if Achiv should allow us to include a ger for everyone and an Eved for, for the Rabbanan? So the Gemara says, Ella, you must say, Amakra mikerev achecha. The word mikerev from the midst of your brethren, mimuvcha shebachecha, your, your primary brethren, or, you know, the most choice. Again, it's very difficult, all this stratification and who's fundamental and who's marginal in society. But anyway, this is the Gemara. Okay, so therefore we define achecha by, 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 by king extremely narrowly. And a ger is excluded, an evid is excluded, a ger is excluded, anybody who's not basically a naturally born Jew. Okay, so that's that explanation. Elamiyata, fine. Okay, but now let's keep on going. Lirabanan, ye evid kashalaidus, for the rabbis, again, that say an evid is considered to be, you know, in our religious community, let an evid be kashalaidus. Dechsiv, ine eid sheker haeid, sheker ana beachiv. Similar to the Pasuk we had before about eidim zamanim, they testified falsely against their brethren. Um, so you need the idea of brethren. So for Rebbe Yehuda, we understand that that excludes a slave. But for, Rebbe, for the Rabbanan, why should a slave be excluded from Eidos? Um, Amar Ula says, Ula, Eidos l'matisamish. No, you can't say a slave is good to testify. Because a woman is excluded from Eidos. So if a woman is excluded, certainly a slave would be excluded. All right? So, yeah, you're right. You're not excluding it from slave. You're excluding a slave from Achiv. That's not how you exclude slave. You exclude it from the fact that a woman, because it says Shnei Hanashim, the two men, and from there we learn men and not women. And if a woman is excluded, certainly a slave is excluded. But the word brother would not by itself exclude slave. A woman can marry, you know, a Jew. Obviously, then there'd be no one for the men to marry. Nevertheless, she can't testify. A slave that cannot marry, uh, you know, a Jew. Certainly, he should be considered, you know, cannot testify. Now, why? What is the logical relation between those two? Who knows? But anyway, that's the Kavachomer of the Gemara. Now, the Gemara says back, no, wait, one minute, how do you know that's what it's about? Maybe it's about maleness. I mean, that's a very interesting way for the Gemara to say this. A woman is not in the mitzvah of Mila. A slave is in the mitzvah of Mila. So maybe that's what's important about testimony. Pure maleness is what's important about testimony. No, we'll prove it by a minor. He has Mila, he's a male. He can't testify. So you see, testifying is not about maleness. And nevertheless, a woman is excluded, and therefore a slave should be excluded. No, malakatun shenu b'mitzvahs. A katan is not yet obligated in mitzvahs. A slave is obligated in mitzvahs. Tomer bevachu b'mitzvahs, a slave is. So maybe it's about being um, obligated in mitzvahs, and that's enough. No, isha tochiach. Sheyeshnu b'mitzvahs, a psuleidus. 
No, but a woman is obligated to mitzvahs and she's exempt. So meaning, what you have here is, is that you can't say being qualified for mitzvah for edus is enough to be obligated in mitzvahs because a woman is not qualified for edus. You can't say it's enough to be a male because a minor is not obligated. So you have to figure out what is the common denominator of exclusion. So v'chazer adin, it goes back and forth. Lo rizek rezev, lo rizek rezev. The characteristics of one case are not like the characteristics of the other case. Hatzadah shavah shabahen, the common denominator of those that are excluded from edus, that they're not in all mitzvah, meaning a minor is not, um, is not uh, what do you call it, is not obligated in any mitzvah yet, and a woman is not obligated in mitzvah and they can't testify. So a slave, even as a male slave, is obligated in mitzvah at the level of a woman. So therefore, he should also be excluded. It seems that the common denominator is not not fully obligated in mitzvot. Okay? And that's how we exclude slaves, not because of the issue of brother, but because of not fully obligated in mitzvot. So the says, one minute. Oh, we're still going to go back to maleness. Okay? But rather than calling it Mila, we're going to call it a man. Okay? Not a male, but a man. So maybe it's about being a man. And a woman isn't a man and a minor isn't a man. It's really interesting, you know, seeing like what is at the heart of this idea. I mean, not explaining it, but identifying what's at the heart of this idea of exclusion from Eidos. So you can't say, so, if, so why should an Evid be excluded? He's a man. And for the rabbis, Achiv is not enough to exclude him. Okay, how about from a robber? Malagazi, uh, um, um, okay, because he's excluded because he, of, of his sin. That makes him a Russia. So no, Malagazi and Shekane Masav Garmala. No, 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 that's separate. There he's puzzled because he brought it on himself. He did something that shows that he's not fit to be an aide. Tomer Beva, Shekane Masav Garmala, slave didn't do any action that should earn him to disqualification. Okay, but fine. But combine a slave plus a woman or a slave plus a minor. So you, in order to find the common denominator there, it can't be that it's enough to be a man. And if we're assuming that there's only one principle, I don't know why we assume there could only be one principle. Maybe it has to be a man who didn't do an Avera, you know, and then you would still have a slave. But assuming that it's got to be one principle, what's the common principle that ex- explains woman, minor, and goslin? The common principle is not do not fully, either not fully obligated to mitzvahs or not fully doing the mitzvahs. Okay, a gazan isn't fully observant, he violates, and a woman and a minor are not fully, uh, are not fully obligated, so therefore a slave also, it is still about mitzvot. Some sense of not being fully in the category of fully obligated, fully performing mitzvot. So since a slave is not, and that explains gazan, isha, and katan, so that's not bad, and therefore a slave would also be excluded, but not because he is not your brother. Okay, um, now, Mar braid Ravina Amar, now Mar the son of Ravina says, no, it's based on a different Pasuk. Amar Kravar says, Lo vos abanim, the, uh, you know, fathers shall not die for their sons, which is usually an estify, an, an interpreted to say that a father shall not, well, normally it might mean the Pshat and Pasuk for the sins of their sons, you don't visit it on the fathers, but also it's understood to mean that you can't testify against a relative. The father cannot die for a testimony of the son. But he's now going to interpret it in a different way. Nobody can die for the testimony of fathers who are not related to their children. 
Okay, and that's a slave. If a slave has a child, it's not considered his son. There's no sense of family. So therefore, that is excluding a slave. You can't testify for, you can't die based on the testimony of a father that who's not related to his children. The If you think, like we normally say, that it just means that fathers can't testify, can't die based on the testimony of sons. Sons can't testify against their fathers. It shouldn't have said Bonim in the generic. It should have said fathers can't die for their, their sons, not sons in general, their sons. Their sons can't testify against them. My Banim, why does it say it in the more generic sons? Shmami not to teach you not only is it about a, you can't testify against a relative, but the lo yumsu api avoch einlem chius Banim, that somebody cannot die because of a father who does not, it would not be related to his children. And that would be for a slave, and that excludes a slave. Elamiata says the Gemara, if that's how you're going to read the Pasuk, maybe we can exclude a ger. So sons will not die for their fathers. So again, that's normally read, sons won't die because of the testimony of their fathers. Fathers can't testify against their sons. Okay, again, to exclude relatives. Hachanami, but according to your read, let's read it this way. That somebody can't die for the testimony of a child who's not related to his father. What type of a child is not related to his father? A ger. El ger. So, el ger hachinami And that would lead you to the conclusion that a ger would be invalid to testify, but that is not our halacha. Amri, the Gemara says, no, you can say about hachi hacha. What type of a comparison is that? It's true, he's not related to his father, so it's a banim that doesn't have a vote, but once he converts, he'll have children, he'll be related to his children. So it's an avot that has banim. Which excludes a slave. A slave is not a father that has relationship to his children or a child that has relationship to his father. Okay? So reading the Pasuk this way, you can't testify for a certain person who's not related to his father or her son. That excludes a slave who's not related to either. It wouldn't exclude a ger who, while he's not related to his father, is related to his son. Because if the Torah wanted to invalidate a ger for testimony, there's a lot of stama here. Okay? Anyway, the the Gemara should have said a father uh, that a uh, fathers shall not die for their sons, meaning to speak about the idea of relatives, but not to be talking about a case of not related to your children. That's not related to your children is unique by a slave. A ger is related to his children. So if we really wanted to invalidate a ger, we would not have spoken about not related to your children. We would have said al b'nei That's about. Te- the testimony of children against their parents. Okay, that would have, how that should have been said. Lo yumsu be'edis banim. Okay, let it say b'neihem, so it's only talking about testimony of children against parents. banim lo yumsu avos. And then let it say, sons will not die al avot. Tishmas minat, trey. Now that would mean, how are we reading it when it says, you know, you know avot and not avotehem? Where's reading it to say that children will not, you know, uh, that with the children who are not re- don't are not related to their fathers, you know, they can't testify. Banim who do not have a vote, they can't testify. So if we just had banim lo yumsu al avot, okay, that would have told me ger, because that would mean who are children that don't have fathers? Those are gerim, and they can't testify. Dishmas minatarti, and that would let you get two things: chada lo yumsu banim be'edus avot. 
because it's generic, it would mean like we normally interpret it, that they can't die on the testimony of their, uh, you know, Banim can't, uh, can't die on the testimony of their fathers. But because it didn't say avotehem, Okay, that they wouldn't die based on uh, children that are not related to their father. Okay, so meaning, if you wanted to exclude a ger, you shouldn't have given me both cases without the b'nei hem avotei hem. You should have. You shouldn't have given both cases, which would say you can't testify. You can't accept the testimony of somebody who's not related to his sons, and you can't accept the testimony of somebody not related to his father. You should have just said the latter case. You can't accept the testimony of somebody not related to his father, and that would have excluded the ger. And now, once I'm excluding ger, the evid nafkalei bechavachom and ger, and I would have learned an evid from a ger. Umad ger dulamalu hudein lochius, avalamati yesh lochius pasul. It's of a ger who's not related to his father, but is related to his son, and he's puzzled. So even though he's puzzled, even though he is related downwards, but because he's not related upwards, a slave who's not related neither to his father or to his son, certainly would be invalid. Now, it's a little funny it has to learn it out from a kavachomer. Why not just learn Evan and Ger from the same Pasuk? That's an easier way to say what the Gemara is saying. So let's say it that way, okay? If the Torah really wanted to exclude both Ger and Eved, it would have only said, Banim lo yimsu alavos. Right, it would have said avos lo yimsu al ham, which would have been speaking about testimony of relatives, and banim lo yimsu al avos. You can't go ahead and accept the testimony of children who are not related to their fathers. Who are children not related to a fathers? Both a ger and an evet. Okay, so if it really wanted to exclude both ger and evet, it only would have used the 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 like non possessive by banim lo yimsu al avos, and that would have excluded both of them. Okay, but it didn't. It also said lo yimsu avos al banim. Okay, and that part, avos abadim, a father that doesn't have a son, that only applies to an evid and not to a ger. Um, okay. Um, but since it also wrote avos abadim and apanehem, the mashal yumsu api avos that you can't die based on fathers that don't have children, and who are fathers that aren't related to their children, that's only an evid. That's that case. Because it went out and said Evid, the shorter way of saying this is, if it, could, if it would have passed Gare, then you would have known Evid as well. But because it went out and said the category that applies only to Evid, Avos Banim, fathers that are not related to their children, since it's, that is an only Evid category and it's invalidating that, that, that is telling you only an Evid is a slave, is possible. But a ger, because he is related to his children, he is kosher Okay, so how do we exclude a ger for edos? Either based on the idea of, you know, the common denominator of woman, minor, and, 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 and goslin, or because of this drasha of banim and avot and avot and banim, and because it, that we're understanding saying that you have to be, have a relationship either to your parents or to your children to be a test, uh, to be an aide, and a ger is related neither to his father nor to his sons, so therefore he cannot be an aide. Okay. Once that's true, that all we wanted to do was exclude an eved, why did we therefore say, why not say avotehem? 
Banim Loim Avot seems to be excluding somebody not related to his father, seems to be excluding a ger. So, why did it say it al Loim Su Banim Al Avot? That sounds like we're excluding a son that isn't related to his father. It sounds like we're excluding a ger. If that's not the actual halacha, why did we say it? I need the cause of loyum sovos abanim, cause of nami abanim loyum sovos. Because the Pazak wanted to speak in parallel. So once it said loyum sovos abanim, and avos abanim excludes an evet, because an evet isn't related to his father, therefore it says abanim loyum sovos, but we didn't mean to exclude a ger. So again, avos loyum sovos is excluding somebody who does not, is not related to his father, is excluding an evet, and therefore since the Torah went out of its way to exclude an evet, we assume that a ger is kosher, a ger is related to his father, not related to his sons, and when it says, that's only coming to, that's just the language is parallel, but it's only coming to exclude testimony of a relative, not coming to exclude a ger. Fine. Anyway, that's how we know that a slave is puzzle edos, even though for the Rabbanon, slaves would be in achva. Now, it's worth looking at this, very, at, at one or two tososim here that are quite uh, 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 surprising or shocking. Interesting to at least interrogate how much will we exclude an evid from different areas according to Rabbi Yehuda. Okay, who t- says an Evid isn't in Achva. So took it to Tosos to Chsiv Kasher Zaman Lasasachiv. Tema, the Tikkilel Reb Yehuda, Miribis Vona, the Gonev Nevesh, the Bukhu Sivachiv. Are we going to say that a Evid is not in the category of charging Ribis and Ona or, you know, stealing, uh, kidnapping? Um, your brother, the poor person. Are we supposed to think that you don't have an obligation of, you know, tzedakah to an Evid? This is really an important question, right? How much, you know, it's one thing saying an evidence is and meets vote, but how much is it sort of, is that part of the interpersonal obligations that apply to, you know, normal fellow Jews? Okay. Um, and it's a really good question, right? In terms of that, it's one thing about not wronging them. How about an obligation of tzedakah? Would for Reb Yehuda, would he exclude a ger, uh, an evid from that? It sounds there, maybe there's a hint from there that maybe the obligation of tzedakah to a slave is a little bit not the same as to a fellow Jew. Okay, that the Gemara actually, whatever, without going into the details, but it's basically like, it sounds like a, the slave is saying, you know, if it's a type of famine, he can say to the master, look, either feed me, and if you can't afford to feed me, you have to free me, because as a free man, people will give me more tzedakah than they will as a slave. Now, that might talk about a social reality. People are more willing to give tzedakah to a Jew than to a Jewish, than to a slave owned by a Jew. Um, but it doesn't really speak necessarily about the difference of the level of chiyuv. Okay? And here, now we point out, so, all right. And maybe, you know, a taka, when it comes to kidnapping, that might be limited to Jews even for the rabbis, because it says B'nai Yisrael. Okay, so Ribis Vona Nami ain't can you have it below Rabbo? And as far as Ribis and Onar are concerned, he says, well, how do you actually do Ribis and Onar for a slave? Slave doesn't have his own money, which is like a technical point, not really categorical. So he really raises a very important question. You know, once Rebbe, the Rabbanon are saying he is a chiv, then the Gemara is willing to say, oh, let him be a, an aide. You know, and once Rebbe Yehuda is saying he's not a chiv, Tos is saying, so how many things are you going to exclude him from? 
Okay. Um, all right. So that's that. Um, let's take a look now and the Gemara uh, continued in the Gemara here. Bottom of Pechet uh, Amun Aleph. Two lines on the bottom. You know, bumping into or actually, you know, having a, um, you know, injury with a conflict with them is going to lead to trouble because for you. Because they're going to be exempt anything they do to you and you're going to be liable for anything you do to them. They're exempt because they are not obligated in halachot and mitzvot and so on. Okay. Amen. The mother of Shmuel Bar Abba from Hagronia, having slay the Rebbe Abba, was married to Rebbe Abba. Now that's a very funny phrase. If he is, if she's the mother of Shmuel Bar Abba, then presumably she's obviously married to Rebbe Abba. Okay, so um, some want to explain that this means that actually her first husband was Abba Mehagronia, and this is a different Rebbe Abba. And that actually works in the story as we're going to see. So it's a little confusing, but anyway. Let's assume that. So this this woman, this uh, 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 the mother of Shmuel, of Shmuel, is married now to a uh, somebody who is who is Shmuel's stepfather. This Rebbe Abba, Havinasi Vleila Rebbe Abba, Kasvino Lenichsei Lerav Shmuel Bar Abba, Shmuel Bar Abba Bra. Okay, she signed over all of her property. She wrote like a, 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 a you know something maybe it would take effect the moment before she died that it should all be a gift to Reb Shmuel Bar Abba, her son. Now, why did she do that? Because had she not given over this gift, she would have died, her property would have gone to her husband. Her husband would have died then, and it would have gotten distributed to his children, not to his stepson, this Reb Shmuel, assuming that we're going to assume stepson. Even if it's the same Rebbe Abba, it would have divided equally among his sons, and, and, Rebbe, and, and Reb Shmuel's mother wanted her property to go only to her son, not to his, you know, his other brothers. Okay, which might not have been her children. Okay, so for whatever reason it is, she wrote over her property to her son. She was married to Rebbe Abba that kept it away from Rebbe Abba and it went straight to her son, okay? And then she died. Um, then she died, after she died. Top of Pechad Moedbet. Also Rebbe Shmuel Bar Abba came to Rebbe Yirmiya. So Rebbe Shmuel Bar Abba, who was the one who was the re- recipient of the gift, went in front of Rebbe Yirmiya Bar Abba. Okay, Rebbe Yirmiya Bar Abba. Now this is pretty funny, right? Is this his brother? Is this his stepbrother? How are you going to a court case here? Isn't somebody here a relative and you're not allowed to go to a court case? That never gets explored by the Gemara. All right, maybe the facts weren't in debate and you didn't have to really go to a based in. It was really a question about halachically whether it worked or not, but it's still pretty funny if it's the same Rebbe Abba here. But we're going to bracket that. It's not, it doesn't get discussed. Anyway, he went to Rebbe Yirmiya. Rebbe Yirmiya said, yeah, it's your property. Your mother signed it over to you before she died. Also Rebbe Abba, so Rebbe Abba, who was the, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the woman's husband who died, you know, his father or his stepfather. He went and he told Rebbe Hoshaya, look, here's what happened. My wife wrote over her property to, to, uh, to Rav Shmuel and uh, now she died. Does that, did that work? Did Rav Shmuel get it or should I be getting it? went and reported this to Rav Yudah. What's the story of that case? Okay, does the property go to the son that the mother wrote over? You know what? This is what Shmuel says. Not the same as Rav Shmuel. Very confusing. Rav Shmuel, Abba's. Okay, anyway. This is what Shmuel says. A woman who writes over property that's nichse milog. What's nichse milog? Nichse milog is property that she brings into the marriage. She retains the title of, but the husband has the right to be ocha peiras, to get the benefit from it. Okay, so assuming that it's, let's say, a field, an orchard, let's make it very literal, he gets the right to have all 
all the apples of the orchard, even though she retains the title. All right? If it's, let's say, she brings in, I don't know, an apartment building, he gets the right to take all the rent from the apartment building when they rent it out, okay? Um, but she retains the title. So the division is, she has the Kenyan Haguv, she owns the title, he has the Kenyan Haperos, he owns it for the benefit that comes from it. That's the relationship of property, nichse milog, that a woman brings into the, to the, to the, to, to the family. And that presumably was the property we're talking about here that the mother of Rav Shmuel wrote over to him. So he says, you know what, Shmuel um, says, Rav Yehuda's, you know, teacher Shmuel, Shmuel says that if a woman, you know, exactly this case, uh, a woman sells her milog while her husband is still alive, while her husband still has the rights to the payros, if her husband sells the rights to the payros and she tried to sell the title, okay, and then she dies, the husband can negate the whole sale since he had the rights to the payros, she was not allowed to sell it without his okay. So therefore, that's what happened here. She essentially sold it or she gifted it without her husband's okay. It does not take effect because he has rights as well. He has rights to the payros. Um, okay, so they went and they said this back you said that this Rav Shmua Baraba would get gets the property. You know that Shmua actually says that the sale in such a case is not good when a mother try, you know when a wife tries to sell property like this. So um, he said back, uh, it's very nice what you tell me in the name of Shmuel. I know a Mishnah. And the Mishnah says that such a thing like this does work. What's the Mishnah? Um, did not. We taught in the Mishnah. A similar case of Kinyan Peres and Kinyan Guf. A father writes over to his son his property that his son will get after the father dies. Okay? Now, the effect of that is, you know, this, this is yours, you know, from today and after I die. What's the effect of that? If you write that language, it's you own this field, you know, this apartment building from today and after I die. So it says, that means that the son owns the, the title. That way the son will get it when the father dies. But until the father dies, the father has the rights to the payros. Okay, so it's a very similar. The, the son has the title, the kinyan haguf, and the father has the kinyan haperos. So translating that, the son is like the wife, owns the title, and the father is like the husband, owns the kinyan haperos. That the son should get it now and for when after he dies. The son can't sell his ownership, his title, because the father has the rights to the payros. The father can't write it, because can't sell because it's written over to the son. The son has the title. Okay, neither of them can sell right now, can finalize the sale, because each one has a stake in it. So while they're both alive, the sale can't be final. Okay? Um, now, now the father let it, he actually went at it and he did sell it. So, so what did he sell? He sold his rights. His rights are the payros. So he went ahead and he sold his rights to the apartment building. Let's use that. So the person he sold it to can collect the rent until the father dies. Why? Because that was the father's rights in the apartment building. The father had the rights to the rent to the payros until the father died. So if he sold it to somebody, that person gets the rent until the father dies. Once the father dies, it all now goes to the son as was arranged. Machar haben, let's say the son sold his title in the apartment building. The, the, the purchaser doesn't get anything until the father dies. Okay, so because it was a sale, he, he sold the, he, you know, he sold the title, but the title didn't mean anything. The father still had the Kenyan Haperos. So the guy who buys the title, he's not better off than the son. He doesn't get anything until the father dies. 
Okay, but what is, that's the Mishnah. But what does that Mishnah suggest? It suggests, that when the father die, does die, okay, the purchaser, the guy who purchased from the son, does get it. It sounds like the son's title did transfer to the other person. The person doesn't get anything out of it yet because the father has the payros. But once the father dies and his payros goes away, his rights go away, this person totally owns it. And that's exactly what happened in our case. The mother gave it to Rav Shmuel, and once her husband, once, you know, and therefore, you know, it's going to now go to him. The problem, of course, is, is that who died first? So let's take a look. So Kima is Av, when the father does die, Mia Isle Lokeach. The father does, the purchaser does, right? The Av Agav, the Mes Habain, Av. Even though the son died while the father was still alive, it didn't come yet into the possession of the son. So again, what is this? The son sells the title to Reuven. The father is still alive. So Reuven doesn't get anything yet because the father has payros. And he's not, okay, and that's going to be a reality as long as the father's alive. The son dies. Okay, the son dies. Reuven still has title. Then eventually the father dies. Now... Reuven can take the payros, okay, which basically means the son's sale of the title worked even while the father was still alive and still held on to the payros. And that would be exactly like our case. The mother gives it to the son. The husband is still alive. He still has payros. That, th- that works. The mother dies, okay? So the son here still has the title that his mother gave him. And once... Rabbi Abel dies and the payros go, his rights to the payros go away, the son will be able to use the payros. So what you see here is, is that the sale did transfer, even though, the fa- even though in the case of the father and the son, the father was around and he was still eating the payros, the sale did transfer. And this goes like Rabbi Shimon Lakish, the Amar who says, It doesn't matter if the son dies first, while the father was alive, that the son never fully got the property yet. He only had the title without the payros. Um, and, and it wouldn't matter if the father died first. Obviously, that's the better case when the son was alive. The That the son got full possession. So whether the son ever got full possession or not, in the case of a father or son, it doesn't matter. The purchaser got the title that the son had, and when the father eventually dies, the purchaser will get it all. Okay? And that should be just like our case with the mother and the husband. The Itmar, because it was taught. Okay? What is this Reish Lakish? Because we'll see it's a debate of Rabbi Yochanan Reish Lakish. The son sells, you know, exa- what, you know, exactly our case. You know, a debate of how to understand this Mishnah about the son selling. The son sold while the father was alive, and the son died first. Well, did that sale go through so the purchaser will get the pay, you know, will get the whole thing once the father dies? Nope, the purchaser did not go through. For the son to sell his title, he has to become in full possession. He cannot sell his title while the father has King Peros. Nope, the sale did go through. He can sell just his title. He did not, he, the purchaser did not get it, Ruling didn't get it. When our Mishnah says that when the son sells it, the purchaser, you know, will get it, um, will get it when the father dies. So yes, the Mishnah did allow for a case that the, if the son sells it to Ruven, Ruven gets it when the father dies, 
When is that true? Um, and, then, and when the father dies, yes, Reuven will get it. When is that true in the Mishnah? Um, that the son didn't die first, that the father died first. So the Mishnah says, if the son sold it to Reuven, Reuven will get it when the father dies. That's only when the father dies first. Because then the father dies first, the son came into full possession retroactively or whatever. The father was never there to sort of, you know, that, that, the fact that now it all comes into the possession of the son allows that sale to take place. Okay, the asuli de haben. That in that case, the father was out of the picture, it, the son got the rights to the payros, and then it all transferred to Reuven. So that works when the father gets out of the picture first. Um, but if the son dies first, he sold the title to Reuven, and then he died first, he never got full possession of it, the son. When the father dies, the, son, the, the purchaser is not going to now get the payros. Why? Because the son's sale of the title, when the father always retained control of the payros, that does not go through. Why not? Alma Kasavar, and this is the classic debate of Rabbi Yochanan Eishwakish, Kini Peros Kikinin Haguftami, because the father's right to the Peros makes the father considered an owner. Okay, the son maybe doesn't mean the son isn't an owner, or at least the father's an equal owner. Because the father has Kinin Haperos, he, the son does not have the ability to sell the title with the father, you know, you know, while the father is still present. So if the son's sale of the title would ever go through, it would only be after, if the son was alive and the father died, okay? But while the father is still present, the son cannot sell the title. So if the son goes, sell, dies first, nothing happens. That's what Rabbi Yochanan says. Um, and therefore, when the son is trying to sell and the father is around and the father is always around when the son is alive, the sale does not go through. Now, says, no, Reuven did get it. When the Mishnah says that the purchaser, Reuven, will get it once the father dies, and once the father dies, Reuven will get it. It doesn't matter if the father died first and the son got into full possession while he was alive. It doesn't matter if the son died first and that the son never became in full possession. Even if the son dies first, Reuven gets it. So we see that Reish Lakish is of the opinion that the father's right to the payros, it does not make the father an owner. So although the father has rights to the payros, the son retains full title as owner, and therefore the son can transfer the title to Reuven even while the father is alive, and that will be a good transfer even if the son dies first. And that is exactly our case. The mother transferred to her, to her son, Rav Shmuel, even though her husband with the Kenyan Paris was alive, and therefore Rav Shmuel gets the title, and he'll get it all once, once Rabbi Abba dies. Okay, so Alma Kazav Kim Pesach Kim to do something. He Kazavin, and when the son is selling, Dide Kazavin, he's selling his own thing. Vanan Hashten. Now we hear there's a lot of stam in these gemaras. I don't know why. Okay, Vanan Hashda Bein Reb Yirmiyah Bein Reb Yirmiyah Bein Reb Yehuda. Whether it's Reb Yirmiyah Bar Abba, the one who you know made the ruling to give it to the to the son in this case of the of the of you know the mother writing over her property. Whether Reb Yehuda who went and got a psak from Shmuel that seemed to be disagreeing. But we know that both of them Kriv Shimon Lakish Svirlehu that they basically hold like Reish Lakish. 
that Kenyan Aperos is Lavka Kenyan Guftami. That's just a general principle we pass in like Reish Lakish. And therefore, everybody should agree that the mother can transfer title. Um, and for by quoting this Mishnah is essentially saying to Rev Yehuda who challenged his ruling if you think that right, that is the only way you're going to disagree with my Psach then so you know you know, if, if, then, then if when the if the father dies and the son dies while the father is alive, Then why does you know if you agree to this ruling of Reish Lakish, the Gemara is sort of a little being redone, repeating itself in different ways. But if you agree to this ruling of Reish Lakish, that you know Reuven gets it even if the son dies first. Okay, so um, and you and you hold kinyan peres kinyan guf, then that doesn't make sense. Why does that work? Kikazavin halavdi dekazavin. Then the the sale shouldn't work, you know, because the son uh, the, the son is not really the owner. The guy, the father with the kinyan peres is the owner. Okay, that's uh, like repeating itself, but it basically says, look, you know, you we all agree like Reish Lakish that the sale of the son works. Okay, and that only makes sense, and that all makes sense based on the principle of Kinyan Paris is Lav Kinyan Guftami, that the father does not have title and can't stop the son's sale. Okay, and we all hold Kinyan Paris, like Rish Lakish, and we all hold Kinyan Paris Lav Kinyan Guftami. So since we all hold that, and we all hold that the son's sale works, that, and the person with Kinyan Paris doesn't have right to stop it, then that should exactly be our case with the mother giving it to her son. Um, so, they, 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 they gave, they told Rabbi Yehuda this, this, you know, counter challenge. And he said back, Shmuel said, yeah, but our case with the mother and the husband and the son is not like that mission of the father and the son. And we will find out tomorrow why it is not comparable to that case.